IntelliKey Leadership Stories with Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stenson. Connect with us on LinkedIn or visit our website, pureintellikey.com. Here's your host, Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stenson. Welcome back, friends, to another episode of our podcast, IntelliKey Leadership Stories. We've been enjoying our series of unique interviews with leaders in all sorts of organizations, companies, nonprofits, investment, these conscious leaders who are innovating and guiding with a higher vision. And Kirsten, I think we're just enjoying hearing what that higher vision or that sole purpose sounds like to the various leaders, haven't we? We have. We've had such great guests and watching them and their happiness come through simultaneously to having high position jobs, right? It's no longer just the job that we dread going to. People are becoming excited about what they're doing and why they're doing it. Yeah. And I think these interviews have often inspired us to take action towards this higher purpose, knowing that we can do good and at the same time do well. And that's the topic we want to explore with our guests today. We're just so happy to have Mitch Slater with us. Mitch, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Really appreciate it. Mitch is a wealth management and investment advisor for a large multinational bank. Uh, He's obviously here not to give us investment advice, but rather to give us a global view of the kinds of companies, the kinds of leaders of those companies who do lead in a conscious way. And Mitch, I think it's just we get started. You know, we think about companies who want to pursue these kind of environmental and sustainability and good governance goals. As an investment advisor, what are you seeing in the big picture as far as companies moving towards that kind of thinking? It's not a trend anymore. It's not windmills and solar-powered roofs. It's come a long way. I mean, it's the, it's the reality of the future of the planet, and it's the reality of everything that's happened in, in social movements and it's the reality of diversity and good governance. And the fact that the United Nations took it so seriously to actually create 17 different, as they call them, ESGs or environmental, social, and governance areas to focus on, more and more companies have no choice but to take this seriously. It's something that's very, very important. And there are a lot of people that are real visionaries in that area that are working at all different organizations. My organization, I'm proud to say, is one that's been a leader in in that specific area, not just today, but for well over 20, 25 years. And it's really to find sustainability in action. So it's, it's a little bit of everything. Obviously, it's people. We'll start with people because that's really where it starts. And it's finding, it's care, it's taking care of your employees as well as taking care of, in my case, uh, their clients. But as a company, it's taking care of your people and treating them well and treating them with respect and treating them fairly. That's all anyone wants. You know, we just, we all want to be, we want to be liked, but we want to be treated with respect and dignity. So, People is, is obviously number one. Climate change is obviously an issue that is, is non-debatable, at least in my view. You know, it's, it's, a, it's about survival. It's that simple and how you're going to look at it. And there are so many wonderful people doing so many wonderful things. I just think of story after story. We can talk later about some specifics about 
people involved in our, in our company, people I've met on my podcast, people I've met through my clients as well that are really making a difference. And I was going to add, you know, this kind of actionable, Kirsten knows I'm eventually going to get to action steps anyway, but on your own podcast, Financially Speaking, you've talked to visionaries and people who are really putting this into play. And I couldn't help but think about one of your recent episodes with Susie Cameron. Now, I, I can also quote you that said, Earth is your favorite planet, that if you could choose anyone to live on, this would be the one, <laughs> which I got a lot of a good kick out of. But I'm she, glad you did. She didn't laugh. And no, I, I yelled I, at her I, afterwards I, about I, that. I thought I would get a better response. from Yeah, her. I was shocked. I, I, I said to her, I said, Susie, I, I know I'm not James. I know I'm not writing scripts, but that was a pretty good line. She <laughs> said, yeah, it's been yeah. a long day. She had just driven eight hours from one side of New Zealand to the other. Uh, to take care of her son's dog. So, but you know, when you're used to talking about her role on Titanic and you know her husband working on Avatar mm -hmm. two and three, maybe your joke just didn't land as well as you thought it would. But no, but the point being, as an advocate, as an environmental advocate that she is, I mean, this very what can you actually do from like replacing one meal a day? But I guess I turn it back to you as this investment advisor, and, and we're thinking about the markets. What can an individual invest? do to flex this muscle and guide companies to take action. Otherwise, it would just be principles. Well, I think it all begins with research and due diligence. I, I, I think ultimately, whether you're investing in a public company or a private company or, or anything like that, or supporting a local restaurant or a, a, a local business, you just have to do your homework. And, you know, we're fortunate enough to live in 2021 when doing your homework includes, you know, picking up one of these um, and Googling and, and finding it out, you know, finding what's there. When I was started in this business in 1987, that wasn't so easy. That was virtually impossible. We had a lot of data, but it wasn't so easy to find out what people were doing, except for what they were revealing. Today, it's not just what they're revealing, it's, it's what's been revealed about them. And I think everybody has their own responsibility to do their homework. And, and I think people are spending more time doing that. I, at least I've seen that. Definitely seen that. And in these companies that, have, you know, the CEOs, right, there's a lot of discussion as well. There's a fund that I follow, and I'm not asking you to comment on the fund, but it's, it's to set up the question. It's Heptia Women, and it's a woman, Patricia, has started these women-led funds for, you know, based on women-held companies, where there is a shift now where People are looking at even what happens when you have a female leading a company going to that EQ and IQ, like there's many cues that are now coming aboard. And it's really a philosophical shift. It's not about women or men, but more about the philosophies that are being imparted along the way. Are you starting to watch that diversity conversation shifting in the way companies are being led as well and expanding and tapping into that in a greater way? Absolutely. And I think it starts, I mean, listen, it starts with me. 15 years ago, I had partnered with my dad for early years of my business. And then he retired and, and then sadly passed away. And then when I decided that I wanted to form another team, because I believe at least in, in my business, this is, a, this is a team sport. This is not something to do on your own. Without a doubt, I knew I wanted to partner with a woman. I mean, that was, that was, you know, or somebody different, you know, someone different with me, let's start with a woman. It could have been a woman of color, it could have, whatever. It, it was going to be a woman. 
from a different perspective. That was the single greatest decision I've made in this business first. And, and I'm not just saying this so my partner will listen and, and applaud. Um, she'll probably say, why'd you say that? But it's true because, you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. We, we, we think differently. Personally, I feel women are a lot more smarter than men. Personally, I think if women ruled the world, there would have been a lot less wars. There would, I mean, I could go on forever on, on, on how I feel about it. And it's not being a feminist or anything like that. It's just, it's just reality on, on, on observations. So I know with my own business and having um, actually two partners, my assistant is also um, female. And, and, but especially with my partner, having an accelerator and a break is very important in every relationship. Whether great it's great definition, whether it's a marriage or whether it's a partnership or whether it's, you know, the largest company in the world. All right. And I'll, I'll use, I'll use a company. I won't say its name. The, 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 the man who founded it, founded it as a young boy, but I think things turned for the better when he brought in a very experienced woman. All right. We probably all know what I'm talking about, but that changed that company in my view for the better. And I, and I think that, like I've seen it in my own business, I think more and more companies are seeing that. And a recent guest on my show, Hubert Jolie, who was the CEO of Best Buy uh, for nine years, he totally changed the culture and made sure that his replacement is a woman who's now running Best Buy. And he spent that nine years in turning that company around. And part of what he did, besides changing the culture and made it more about the employee and about the customer than about profits and bottom line. And if you read his book, um, The Heart of Leadership, which just came out, he specifically talks about that. But he saw that very clearly. And having women in senior leadership roles make a difference. I've seen it with my own company, which I'm proud to say is is been ahead of the curve, but I've certainly seen it in, in, in many other businesses as, as well. And listen, we're all different. We're all wired differently. And mm -hmm. it's, it's important to see different perspectives. So I, I think it's, you know, I think that's definitely the part of the people part of sustainability. It really is. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's working. Another CEO you talked to was the chairman and CEO of Oniva. Mm -hmm. And I was curious what sort of values in action you might have heard from her. Well, Anita was probably one of the, <laughs> the most fun guests I've had in a long time. She, you know, she's someone who had been a sen senior management in a number of Silicon Valley tech companies for many, many years. And she had a vision and her vision came to her kind of the way that we all face this. I have a 94 year old mother. I had to figure out what to do about care for her. Fortunately, she's in great shape. Um, but, you know, we had to find people to be in the house for a while and, and, then, and then during the pandemic. And, and I had no idea where to start. I mean, that, that's, that's just a, a, a giant void. And that's, you know, elder care. Then you have child care. Then you have pet care, whatever it is. There are all of these things that we need help with. And why not start with the company you're working for? Why can't they as part of a benefit, you know, a part of being the heart of the business. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. Why not offer these special services and what Anita developed um, and a little fun side fact about Anita, her brother was Christopher Darden, who if 
you may remember from the OJ uh, trials. What Anita did was she went to the strongest connection that she had, which was at Microsoft, and they got it. They figured it out right away. She had the engineering, she had the technology, and obviously Microsoft had the foundation to help put this company together and really initially be their only client. Now they are a private company. They are in the midst of some major growth, some major funding. And I think more and more companies are going to be working with her. She happens to be a woman of color. Um, and I love this story that she told me in, in, in this episode. Um, first of all, it's always nice to talk to another baby boomer. <laughs> um, <laughs> that makes me feel a little bit more comfortable um, every now and then. But we got talking and she, I said to her, well, give me the background. Give me really what got you interested in business. And she said, do you ever watch the TV show Mannix? And she hit a, she struck a nerve because I loved that show as a kid. Uh, I, you know, it was Sunday nights at nine o'clock on CBS. And I remember watching it, but she said Mannix had an assistant that would pick up the phone and I didn't know what a caller. So I called her the call girl. Then I realized when I got a little older, that's not exactly. <laughs> that wouldn't be the what, term. What, right. But Peggy, who was the assistant call girl or whatever girl Friday, I guess uh, to go really back. She helped solve every case. And she had never seen a woman of color on television in that kind of a role. So she didn't mm. see her as the secretary. She saw her as the person that made sure that Joe Mannix could solve every case. And that gave her such confidence. And that that's kind of where she got her start to do that. And, you know, you see that more and more, you know, with, with, with different people. And you mentioned, you know, you mentioned Susie Cameron and, 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 and that's just a wonderful story because yes, she was an actress and doing very well and in great movies and obviously met her husband on the set of Titanic. Um, and, you know, she could have sat back and, and counted the dollars because Titanic, Avatar, Terminator, you start working the numbers, they're, you know, they're, they're pretty big, but she had something that really mattered a lot to her, and that really was the environment. And for her, it started with plant-based eating. And as she learned more about this and did more research, uh, she realized that we need to educate people. So she developed a school that's doing that in California. And as she developed a school, she heard from more people. She started hearing from athletes that were saying, oh, yeah, this whole thing about, you know, the macho the men have to eat meat and, and have to drink their milk. And that's how they're going to be the best athletes. No, 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 that's not the case. And there's a wonderful documentary, which she produced with Arnold Schwarzenegger called Game Changers on Netflix, which tells the story of all these incredible athletes. But it, it's pretty amazing what she started to find out. And then make it simple for people. For her, it was one meal a day. That's it. And I will tell you, I am a carnivore. I am, uh, you know, I, I don't sit and eat a lot of beef or a lot of chicken or whatever, but that's just been my nature. And I've made the pledge. So I have one meal a day that's plant-based. And Susie suggested breakfast, which was a good idea, because that's kind of been the easier one for me. Um, and I'm drinking oat milk, um, which is absolutely delicious. So I'm, I'm taking little baby steps, but it's, it's, it's a step. And I think that's sustainability in action. And that's what a lot of these leaders are trying to do at 
all organizations. And we've been talking about some larger companies like Oneva and Best Buy and the others. But I also think about the upstarts, you know, and the entrepreneurs and the people just with a new idea. And you also recently talked to Matt Higgins who, of Shark Tank fame. And I think about the people who are pitching the Shark Tank. What is Matt's point of view on what the startup companies could do to make an impact like this? Well, what he told me is that not just with Shark Tank, he also, he works with Steve Ross and handles a billion dollar investment fund and is constantly, you know, being pitched. And I think he said something like two out of three pitches have some tie-in to pollution and waste, to water, to governance, to, you know, to climate change. There's something there. And obviously that showed him that this is, this is not just a fad. And he's seeing more and more of it. And I've seen more and more of it, certainly on, on Shark Tank. But those are the kinds of companies that he's really looking to invest in. And that's great when you have billionaires thinking that way. Yes. So what was your pivotal moment in your own career to hit your potential and start going? Because it sounds like you even have a personal mission in everything that you're speaking of and about. So how did you get there and here? Well, that's a great question. I have a couple answers. When it comes to my career as a financial advisor, the most important thing to me that I learned very early is how poorly we have done as a country when it comes to financial education. We are ranked 14th in the world. 14th, the United States of America. We are ranked 14th in the world in financial literacy. We don't teach it. We don't tell people about it at home. Obviously, as I said, it's not in the schools. We focus a lot on algebra and trigonometry and chemistry. And I'm not saying that's not important. If you're going to become a doctor, certainly I want you to be taking chemistry classes. But in general, that wasn't there. So the pivotal moment, I think, was meeting a woman named Neil Godfrey. Neil had written a book on teaching kids about money. She was a regular on Oprah Winfrey. And I had her as a guest on a radio show that I had in the, in the 90s, in the early part of my career in New York. And she started talking to me about the problems with that. And one of the things she said to me, which has just stuck with me, just, just absolutely stuck with me, is she said, Mitch, we grew up in the Donna Reed generation, okay? Leave it to Beaver, Donna Reed, pick, pick your black and white show. It doesn't really matter. Mom was vacuuming, wearing pearls. Dad was home at six o'clock with the slippers on, having dinner, and everybody sat down, and that was it. But in that generation, and honestly, it hasn't changed that much, it was easier to talk about sex in the household than it was money. Money was taboo. Oh, we can't tell our kids about our money. And I mean, not just growing up, wait till your parents are in their 80s or 90s and suddenly they you know, have some issue and you know nothing. And part of what has been the most important pivotal moment for me was to realize that I need to help families and I need to help families multi-generationally. So I need to make sure the kids understand what's happening. And I need to tell the, the parents, you've got to have family meetings with your kids. You have got to, to quote Graham Nash, teach your children well. It's so critical. And I am so proud on a separate note that I, when I was on the Board of Education and I ran for two terms here in, in Westfield, New Jersey, is that I made it a mission to try to get financial literacy in our high school 
And not only was I so successful in that, but I was able, along with my friend Neil Godfrey and the governor at the time, uh, Corzine, to mandate that in the state of New Jersey. So you can't graduate high school without a one semester class about basic financial literacy. Oh my God, where's the road show on that one? <laughs> exactly, exactly. We're gonna need to see the deck. <laughs> I'll get it for you. Yeah, I'll get it for you and I got, I'll get wow. Neil for you. You should talk to Neil and Neil, Neil just published her 21st book and I'm sure would love to chat with you because she is an encyclopedia on this topic as was a woman I met years later, uh, may she rest in peace, Holly Prespin, whose ex-husband ran Barney's, which was a very big mm -hmm. store in New York and, and California. And she obviously had a lot of wealth, but her big mission in life was financial literacy. And she found me through a lot of things that I was doing. And we actually developed our own little website called FinLit TV, where I was interviewing a lot of young entrepreneurs or young kids about this topic. And I was, and I was blown away. I found, a, I found a young actress in California, her name is Rachel Fox. And Rachel played the daughter on the TV show, Desperate Housewives, not the Desperate Housewives of Atlanta or whatever, um, <laughs> the original TV show. Yes. Um, and then she was in private practice. She was in a lot of shows as a teenager. And I met her and she was maybe 19 years old, but she was fascinated by investing and fascinated by that world. And she also had really great parents. And she started talking about it. And she even developed a little a site called Fox on Stocks, where she wasn't giving advice, but she was giving education about that. And she actually did some TED Talks. And, and I, I met Rachel and, and actually was kind of like a side consultant and working, helping her because it was just so important to teach the next generation about basic money. And when I hear, and I heard it today, I swear to you, I heard it three hours ago from uh, an employee of a 401k plan that I manage in California, a woman who's 34 years old. And if I had a, I said to her, if I had a, um, not just a nickel, but um, a, a token, I guess a Bitcoin token for every time that somebody has said that to me, you know, I'd be Bill Gates. But what she said was, oh, I have, I'm clueless when it comes to money. And I just, every time I hear that, it just, it takes another year off my life. I, I swear. It, it, stop saying it. Stop it already. Get educated. Yeah, it's, take some, some personal really, accountability. Take some personal accountability. Yeah. But throw one more person in there who I interviewed. Her name's Erin Lowry. She wrote a book called Broke Millennial. Erin Lowry, a young woman who is in the New York area, when she was, you know, she was a typical kid, kind of like my client and friend, Gary Vaynerchuk, who was doing all kinds of amazing things as a little kid that, you know, led them to be amazing entrepreneurs. But her father said to her, and she was very bright. She got into Dartmouth. She got into, you know, $60,000, $70,000 a year college. But she also got into St. Bonaventure for the same program with a scholarship. And her father basically sat her down and taught her and said, so here's, we can't afford to send you there. Okay, so you can have $250,000 in debt and have that Ivy League degree, or you can get a degree and you'll, you'll do fine in life. Okay, St. Bonaventure is an excellent school. And she made that choice to go there. And then she moved to New York and she's written books now on investing and mostly teaching millennials, you know, because she started out broke and how, you know, how to live your life and help educate people 
how to get a financial life, as Beth Kobliner said in a book she wrote years ago, and Beth has written for the New York Times on this topic. And I think that we have to help people. And I really see that, you know, it doesn't get counted in when people talk about uh, sustainability or they talk about all of these things. I, I think financial education to me needs to be up there because, you know, you've got to learn. It does, and I don't care what economic stratosphere you're in. And obviously there's a wide diversity of that, but just having some understanding of, of saving. Uh, absolutely. So Kirsten is asking you how this, you know, fork in the road in terms of your career path. I always love to scroll all the way to the bottom of the LinkedIn profile and the resumes where the values are really formed. Out of school, you took a job at a little cable news network called CNN, and you were working with uh, Larry King, just, you know, an interviewer, another guy with a radio talk show. What, what sort of things did you... <laughs> <laughs> what sort of things did that really, I guess, teach you early in your career as far as values in action? Well, that was the other pivotal moment. I'm glad you brought it up. Meeting Larry King, working with Larry King and having Larry King as my friend really was one of the great honors of my life for many reasons. Pivotally, it was a very strategic thing. I was doing a lot of different internships while I was at school at uh, GW in DC. And I met Larry when he was a guest on another talk show. And I did the thing you do and you asked him to lunch and, and, and we just hit it off. And, and he literally hired me after three and a half hours sitting at the Palm in Washington, DC. He hired me basically pending his boss talking to me because they needed an overnight producer. So just to, to clarify, when I worked for Larry King, this is pre-CNN. Larry had the Coast to Coast radio show. He had the most popular radio show in the country. Every insomniac in the world listened to Larry King because um, <laughs> the show was on from 10 to 6 in the morning, including me. And I loved it because I loved his guests and I loved his personality. And I loved baseball. And Larry talked about baseball, which is probably why I got hired. So working for Larry, when I had that opportunity three months before I graduated to go to work and I walk in there night one and I, I'll never forget the guest because the guest was Sid Caesar, who was a hero, another hero to me in the world of comedy based on my age. But I learned two major things from that relationship over time. Number one, be a good listener. Larry said to me, early on I, and, and learning this at 20 years old was so critical to everything I've done in my life. He said, Mitch, I never learned anything with my mouth open. Simple line, but just said it all. And then the other thing I learned because I would watch Larry with no notes, hadn't read the book. He'd have James Michener on, hadn't read the book. Doesn't matter who was on presidents. Jimmy Carter had written a book, hadn't read the book. Curiosity. If you can combine really good listening and curiosity, in my view, you can be successful in anything that you do in life. And what we're doing right now is a great example of both. You are asking questions that somebody walking their dog outside right now, listening to this podcast, are probably thinking. Mm -hmm. And that's the beauty of curiosity. And you're taking the time to listen to what I have to say. So even though you may, like me, have a prepared script, you're ready to go off script because you're, you hear something that triggers what you think is a little bit more interesting than maybe what you had done in your own research. So I was able to translate that from the world of media, which I spent eight years on, had a wonderful time working for Larry. I worked on some game shows, Love Boat. 
uh, was actually a contestant on the show Love Connection. Okay, um, I love Love Boat for anybody <laughs> out there. Okay, I'm just saying. <laughs> That's right. The nicest, Gavin McLeod, the nicest guy that in the world. That is awesome. Yep. And <laughs> that I, is I, my I, dream cruise. And, and looks great in the white shorts. So. <laughs> Let me tell you, the funniest thing, when I got on that set, and this is, Love Boat was just about ending, and they were doing, I think, some specials. And I got on that set working as a production assistant and, you know, like everyone else was a Love Boat fan and, you know, and I'm obviously you're expecting, you know, the, the Pacific Ocean and then you walk on the set and you just see it. It's, it was so disappointing. <laughs> it's the It just ruined all of the magic. But the nice thing is what is the people, every single person that I met for the, wasn't that long, maybe, you know, two or three episodes or whatever, they couldn't have been nicer. And actually, Years later, my wife, who's a writer at the time, was a travel writer, and uh, Gavin McLeod was doing these love boat cruises for Princess Cruises, and I went with her and reunited with him, and and we spent most of that time, you know, together, had a, had a really great time chatting with him, and, you know, that was amazing experiences, so having those experiences while I was in California and in New York and in Philadelphia in television and radio and media, I, I was learning something everywhere. And then I got into this business, literally October 19th, 1987 was my first day as a Merrill Lynch account executive, as they called it back then. And for those who don't know, the stock market crashed 20% on that particular that Monday. I looked at my dad, who was the one who recommended, and I said, thanks, dad. That was really great call. Really appreciate it. Turned out to be the best decision all, ever. All but, up from there, though. But all up, exactly, all up from there. And you know what? I think that's another great lesson anybody learns in life is for, you learn more from failure than you learn from your successes. So starting out with the ultimate failure of not knowing if I'll even have a job this on day two because of what happened in the markets really forced me to, to up my game. Oh, you know, I just want to point out to our listeners too, you spoke of, you know, that lesson that Larry King set in for you, but your hat says talk less. <laughs> well, you know, it's very funny. How fortuitous. That, that's, <laughs> that's basically my love of Hamilton. And I just love the hat. And, and you're very astute. Someone else brought that up recently. And that's very true. And I loved Aaron Burr's line when he says to uh, Hamilton, you know, talk less, smile more. And I think that's just so true. Fantastic. Well, Mitch, we can't thank you enough for a fantastic conversation. And it's interesting how maybe this brings us full circle to your very first comment that things like E, S, and G are no longer trends. And it's great to hear maybe personal investors listening, CEOs listening, and taking these things to heart. Yeah, it's very true. I think the world is listening and certainly the generations that come after us, the Gen Zs, which my daughter is, and the millennials, which my son is, and whatever the generation that's before that, I think they're listening too. And hopefully they'll correct whatever, you know, every generation looks back and re has regrets and wishes they did things better. And I'm an optimist. I, I think we're heading in the right direction. I really do. I I could go on and, you know, have a wall of worry forever about so many different things, but 
I'd like to remain an optimist. And certainly I'm glad we're having this discussion as the pandemic is winding down. I guess that helps. Yes, brighter days ahead. And I got vaccines in my arm. Well, Kirsten, thanks for another good conversation. I know that you'll probably want to extend this conversation with a lot of your clients. You know, we're also starting another segment of our Young Professional Master Soul Group. These are for the A performers that are committed to doing good with their talents beyond just creating a profit. So I have some brilliant young professionals, the criteria being 40 and under, and I think my youngest coming in is 23. So I'm pretty excited about that. Oh, isn't, it, isn't it incredible to see people yeah. at that age? Oh, it's mind blowing. It gives I me mean, chills. Amanda Gorman, I guess, is my best example of that mm-hmm. and what she did on Inauguration Day. And it's it's so uplifting to, to see that happening. It's brilliant. Well, our guest has been Mitch Slater. He's an investment advisor for a global bank, and he's the host of a podcast called Financially Speaking with Mitch Slater. You'll want to check it out. And listeners, come back again for one of our episodes of IntelliKey Leadership Stories. We'll continue these interviews with people and organizations, companies, nonprofit investment groups all over the world as we explore what it means to be a conscious leader and really live up to our human potential and our soul's purpose. And that's what the word IntelliKey really means. So for Kirsten Gouldy, I'm Mark Stenson. This is IntelliKey Leadership Stories. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to IntelliKey Leadership Stories with your hosts, Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stinson. Connect with us on LinkedIn. And for more information on courses and consulting, visit pureintellikey.com. This program was produced by BSB Media, creators of IntelliKey Leadership Stories, unlocking your world of creativity, and thepeaceroom.love. Our podcasts are hosted on Captivate.fm and available anywhere in the world, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Ghana, and iHeartRadio.